Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spoda Kendall, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, we are honing in on the state of crypto regulation and what to expect in the rapidly approaching new year. And wow, there's a lot to talk about. The vast world of crypto assets has been expanding and changing quickly in recent years, even recent months, and regulators have been scrambling to catch up with varying levels of success depending on uh, who you talk to. Some of the biggest recent news, of course, is the long-awaited updated guidance from the FATF on crypto, which, among other changes, sharpens the focus on DeFi and stablecoins. For insights on these updated recommendations and much more, we talk with Chris DePau, Senior Advisor for Financial Institution Regulation and Compliance at blockchain analytics firm Elliptic. We'll explore financial crime risks and pending regulatory initiatives in the crypto space and focus in particular on the challenges faced by traditional financial institutions as they seek to integrate crypto offerings and DeFi services. Chris, Thank you so much for being here on the Financial Crime Cast. It's a real pleasure having you on the program. A lot happening in the crypto universe right now. Uh, a lot to talk about. So we're uh, really excited to uh, have you join us for this conversation. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, certainly an interesting time uh, to be in the space. Great. Well, if you don't mind telling the, the listeners out there a little bit about uh, your background, your current role at Elliptic, and, uh, and what, what you have going on in the cryptoverse. Sure. Yeah. My name is Chris DePau. I'm the Senior Advisor for Financial Institution Regulation and Compliance uh, here at Elliptic. Uh, What that means is that I advise our customers on how to integrate crypto AML programs into their existing compliance frameworks. I also produce quite a bit of outbound content discussing developments in the crypto regulatory world uh, and, and where we think regulation might be headed. More generally speaking, Elliptic is a blockchain analytics and monitoring firm. So we look at on-chain activity to determine whether or not a particular transaction or wallet might be associated with a bad actor. Um, We also offer a product called Discovery, which helps to risk rate different BASPs. Those are virtual asset service providers for those uh, not familiar with the terminology and and determine, you know, uh, where they're operating, what their licensure looks like, things like that to help give financial institutions and other entities that might want to engage with them uh, a little bit of an overview of some potential risk considerations. Great. Yeah. And I think it's very timely. You're talking about risk rating and tools that institutions can use. You know, obviously there is a really tremendous expansion of what I've heard referred to as the uh, the traditional finance or TradFi uh, space with the crypto space right now. A lot of banks uh, exploring how to provide services to VASPs, um, exploring or engaging in their own blockchain projects or tokens, uh, exploring, you know, different types of crypto finance. So uh, there's just a real kind of convergence between what is sometimes referred to as the, the, the world of fiat currencies and the world of cryptocurrencies right now. Um, so I'm wondering how you have seen that play out and especially whether there's been, as I sort of sense, there is a, a real acceleration um, in, in, let's say, the last 18 months. Yeah, undoubtedly, uh, over the last 18 months to two years, we've seen a huge uptick in the number of sort of traditional financial institutions who are interested in engaging more with the crypto space. And I think that's due to a few things. One of them is certainly customer demand. 
um, as we've seen sort of retail investors become more and more comfortable with crypto, uh, whether that's from finding it on their own or maybe a fintech service that they use uh, might have integrated a crypto platform into their existing offering. Uh, we, we have seen a tremendous spike in interest. The other is on the institutional investment side. A lot of folks are starting to acknowledge that, look, this this new asset class is not going anywhere. Um, it doesn't represent maybe the very, very heightened degree of risk that we thought it originally did from sort of a compliance and money laundering perspective, although, you know, there are certainly still problems out there. Uh, I think it's it's fair to say that the, the ecosystem now is much cleaner than maybe it was in 2013 or 2014. Um, and there's a tremendous uh, opportunity to participate in new types of financial innovation uh, that are only sort of possible through a decentralized mechanism. And, you know, as we see more and more of that opportunity expand, I think we're going to see continued interest from maybe the more traditional financial institution players in this space and engaging, um, whether that be in onboarding a particular crypto exchange, say, as a customer or a custodian or something like that, or whether it's providing these services directly to retail customers, wealth management customers, whatever the case might be, right? Um, there are many different avenues that a traditional FI can explore uh, in which to engage with the world of crypto. And it's really dependent on the individual risk appetites of those specific FIs uh, to determine what model might be best for them. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, it that definitely overlaps with what we've seen. You know, we do a lot of webinars and conferences and events and that type of thing. We, we ask pretty frequently on um, the, the crypto focused ones we do. You know, if you're at an institution, what would it take for your institution to to get more involved, uh, you know, provide services for VASPs, explore, you know, get, building business lines within the kind of crypto space? Um, and the number one, well, the number one answer I'll get to in a second uh, that we typically get, but the number two answer is is demand from, you know, clients, consumers, that type of thing. And I think that retail demand from retail investors, that institutional demand um, is really is really driving institutions to take a second and much more, I think, careful look at this. There was this sort of all crypto is high risk, um, all crypto business models, we don't touch initial sort of reaction to it at a lot of institutions, really not all. Um, there's still that that feeling, I think, at some of the institutions we we interact with. But um, I'm wondering, you know, if you've seen a much more nuanced take on crypto um, and a much more kind of thoughtful or segmented look at, okay, you know, these are different types of vast, these are different crypto business models. They do have different risks, and we're going to be, you know, thoughtful about how we approach them. Is that is that something that you've seen kind of uh, gain traction in the the financial institution space? Yeah, very much so. And something that I think has been sort of hugely beneficial is the fact that you now have, have a lot of crypto subject matter experts housed within these traditional FIs. So in the early days of institutional and maybe mainstream adoption of crypto, uh, a lot of folks that were working within these organizations didn't really have much familiarity with the product offerings, didn't have a ton of familiarity with what the differences may be between uh, different blockchains or different DeFi protocols might be. Uh, now that we have some sort of seasoned subject matter experts within these orgs, it's much easier to explain sort of where particular AML or other compliance risks might emerge, right? So if you're looking, for instance, to be a crypto custodian, we can speak to folks pretty intelligently about 
why it is much easier to conduct blockchain monitoring and analytics on a you know an open blockchain let's say something like bitcoin or ethereum where you can actually see uh, the history of all transactions that have occurred than maybe on an encrypted blockchain for a privacy coin something like monero where it's much much more difficult to do that type of analytics uh, work so by partnering with the internal smes at financial institutions we're able to determine okay what is your actual risk appetite how much you know how much juice is really worth the squeeze here um and and what would you like to do in order to mitigate any risks that that may ultimately arise um and when it comes to you know the more traditional if, if that word is really even appropriate here the more traditional uh blockchains um we we do have visibility and and that's a big misnomer in sort of the the public space more generally is that you know, the blockchain is anonymous. And in reality, the vast majority of blockchains are pseudo anonymous, where you may not be able to see, you know, the information that Chris DePau has account one, two, three and engage in a particular transaction. But you can see that account one, two, three or wallet one, two, three is really the case is um, engaged in a particular transaction. And through a variety of analytical techniques and statistical analyses, you're able often to sort of group those transactions together and determine where there might be a cluster of bad activity um, that, that you can then seek to mitigate. And it also really helps when you're looking at the customer side of things and conducting a sort of a risk analysis on your customer to know, okay, well, my customer, John Smith, has had several transactions with what we believe to be a dark web marketplace. It doesn't seem like it's, it's accidental. Um, maybe we should consider a risk exit here. Maybe we're comfortable just adding more risk points to a KYC profile. Whatever the right approach is, right, there's, there's now the ability to more accurately define risk uh, and when, when possible mitigate it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some great points about building the internal expertise within institutions, um, just the amount, the level of knowledge and the level of understanding um, has really come up quite a bit, you know, again, over the past two years. And in a lot of the members and institutions we have in our space, it's just been really impressive to see people learn, adapt, um, grow, and and uh, be able to, as you're, you're saying, you know, understand how to take on and when to take on some of, some of the risks of, of getting involved in the crypto space and also recalibrating their understanding of, you know, how risky uh, uh, cryptocurrencies are, period, and, and, and uh, understanding some of the advantages of that, that level of transparency and visibility on, on public blockchain. So um, I want to revisit that, that, that point I mentioned about, you know, the number one, area, the number one limitation or thing it would take for institutions to get more involved in, in the crypto world. And that, that's always been regulation, um, you know, great, clearer regulation, um, more, more regulation has uh, typically been the number one answer. Um, and there have been some, a lot of, of, of positive steps, I think, in that direction. Well, depending on who you ask, they might have a different answer on, uh, on how positive it is, but uh, certainly regulatory developments. Um, I want to first ask about about a kind of I don't want to call it a thorn in the side of a crypto regulation, but definitely an ongoing challenge in crypto regulation, which is the travel rule. But then um, after that, I do want to revisit. I want to visit, uh, touch on the the FATF's updated guidance recommendations around um, a risk-based approach to virtual currencies that really just came out, I think, um, several days ago. So uh, let's start with the, the travel rule, um, you know, on that theme of, hey, we need more regulation to get more comfortable with the crypto space and be able to fully engage in business with the, the world of VASPs and that type of thing. Um, 
how what are you know what are the implications of the travel rule what have been some challenges in implementing it and how's the how's the crypto industry addressing some of those challenges yeah so with regard to the implications of the travel rule you know i think that generally speaking having more information available uh to sort of financial intermediary partners who may be involved in the world of crypto is a good thing particularly when it comes to avoiding instances of financial crime, identifying where you might be seeing patterns of, of bad activity, et cetera. Um, just a brief overview for folks who may not be super familiar. The travel rule is a requirement that's been applicable within the fiat world for years now, um, that is now being enforced within the crypto sphere as well. That requires originator and beneficiary information uh, be available and communicated among VASPs and FIs uh, that are engaging in these types of transactions. So if a customer of a financial institution wants to send $1,000 worth of crypto to a customer, well, that's actually about it. Let's let's uh, ignore maybe the thresholds for a minute because there are specific thresholds depending on the jurisdiction. But let's say a, a, a customer of a financial institution wants to send a, an amount of, of crypto value that exceeds the threshold in their jurisdiction uh, to a customer of a VASP, then all of the personally identifying details of that sender, the originator, have to travel along with that transaction. So that's things like name, uh, personally identifying information, the value of the transaction, et cetera. Um, and that information has to then be verified by the sender. On the other side, the, uh, the recipient, the beneficiary, uh, is responsible for maintaining that same information on, for the other, other half of the transaction. And what that does is it provides regulators, law enforcement officials, uh, and the exchanges and financial institutions themselves with far more information as to who's actually transacting uh, within their ecosystems and what bad activity might ultimately look like. There have been several challenges in travel rule implementation. Um, I think sort of the number one uh, hang up early on was the fact that there was not a clear technical path as to how to achieve the goals of the travel rule. Um, you know, within the tra traditional financial services world, there are extant systems that are leveraged to do this already. There's there's a whole infrastructure in place to support the sending and receipt of this information. Within crypto, none of that existed. And so several working groups were started going back a few years now uh, to try and, and devise a solution for this. One very popular approach was sort of the bulletin board approach where one institution will post a transaction, the other will grab it, and there'll be information sharing based upon that. That's proved challenging because you don't always know that the posting or grabbing institution uh, is acting honestly. Certainly, we, we, we hope that all institutions are, are acting uh, in a transparent and honest way, but that's, that's often hard to guarantee. Um, so we have seen a lot of third-party service providers offering basically travel rule compliance technological solutions pop up in this space. And at Elliptic, we work with several, sort of notably Notabene is one of our major partners in, in conducting travel rule compliance. And we really strongly believe that, that they offer a great product in order to communicate this information uh, in a way that, that makes it accessible to any folks operating in, in the industry, whether or not you leverage you know, their particular software or not. Um, but I think the big message here is that travel rule adoption by these institutions is a good thing and creates a safer and more sound system uh, in which people can transact. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to really spur mainstream adoption, then you need to have people believe uh, that the counterparties that they're interacting with are reputable and that there's ultimately some sort of oversight framework and controls framework in place to ensure that, you know, if a transaction that they make with a party uh, 
that a transaction that they may engage in with a party is actually with the party that they think it is, that there is no sort of uh, potential for money laundering activity to be going on. And so anything that helps further those compliance controls will also help further the, the ultimate goal of mainstream crypto adoption. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I think as you're, as you're noting, there's a lot of really good work taking place in this space um, and really interesting technical solutions to this challenge. So let's touch on that, that, uh, that second point that I alluded to over it kind of a little bit overlap with the, the travel rule question. That's the FATF's um, updated recommendations. Now um, I think these were, these were pretty long awaited, um, but What's come out is, is is important and notable. Not a tremendous amount of variation from what I've heard um, from previous iter from the previous iteration. So, can you talk a little bit about what um, uh, what's contained in this uh, guidance, this recommendations on a risk based approach, um, and what enforcement might look like by some of the national regulators who are responsible for their implementation? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've seen in the latest version of the revised FATF guidance uh, is largely in line with previous iterations. As you mentioned, there had been some sort of very important clarifications that have been made that I think will really help financial institutions in particular as they consider how to move forward with crypto and whether or not uh, getting involved in sort of the larger decentralized finance uh, world is something that they might have an appetite for. In particular, uh, with regard to DeFi, there was a clarification made that an individual or individual, meaning a natural or legal person, right, who um, who maintains substantial responsibility and control over a DeFi protocol, uh, that that person or entity might come into scope or will come into scope as being a VASP. So, for instance, we've seen the argument made a lot in the past that, you know, a decentralized uh, finance protocol can't really have uh, a, a VASP obligation because the governance is decentralized and there's not one, one centralized third party responsible for the administration of the protocol. What we're seeing is that, you know, if you are the entity or individual responsible for providing a domain for a particular protocol implementation, or uh, you are responsible for supporting the ongoing development uh, of a particular implementation's uh, sort of ecosystem and ensuring that there are, that the security of the the system is updated and, and kept up to snuff. Well, in by doing that, you may exercise substantial control uh, in such a degree as to make you a VASP. And if you are then defined as a VASP under the FATF guidelines, then the expectation is that AML program requirements and other compliance requirements will then be sort of forced upon you. Um, this is going to be. Uh, probably a challenging adoption for a lot of the folks operating in this space, right? And, and to your earlier point, it will be very interesting to see how sort of the boots on the ground enforcement arms of regulators actually deal with this. Uh, because, you know, as we all know, it's very easy to write something down on paper and to create a policy. It's much harder in practice uh, to enforce it in a meaningful and effective way. And so during this sort of adoption period, um, it's likely that that a great number of these protocols will ultimately ultimately be identified as having an entity or person with substantial control and power over a given implementation of the of the protocol, uh, so as to come into scope as VASPs. Um, it's really worth highlighting, though, that that's not to mean that software developers of these protocols will necessarily be considered VASPs. In fact, they will not be, right? Simply developing the software on which a DeFi protocol operates uh, is not a VASP activity, 
But in reality, a lot of times it's these same developers uh, who create the software that then launch a particular implementation of that software in whether it be to sort of help promulgate it throughout the broader DeFi ecosystem, whether it be to make money themselves based on, you know, potential governance token sales and things like that. There's a lot of reason that folks may do it, um, but it, it does happen fairly commonly and they're going to have to, to meet their AML compliance obligations in the near future. Um, with regard to enforcement, I don't think we, we quite know what it'll look like on a country by country basis yet, but I would expect that in the relatively near term, we're going to start to see enforcement actions uh, become more commonplace as the FATF recommendations are implemented through national laws. Um, another interesting takeaway from the FATF guidance is around NFTs. Uh, so NFTs have been sort of hugely uh, popular, I don't know why I want to call them investments, but certainly popular buying opportunities for folks interested in crypto recently. Um, and FATF was clear that in the majority of cases, NFTs do not meet the definition of virtual assets and so will not be covered uh, by much of the guidance applicable to general cryptocurrencies uh, as you define them. What's interesting though is that they did sort of carve out a, a statement that if the NFT is designed to function as a virtual asset, that, that is to, to mean that it really is more fungible than not, and then it could represent a sort of a payment methodology, then it can still nonetheless be scoped in uh, to the definition of a virtual asset, even if it wouldn't otherwise apply. And I think that was a really good move by FATF in the recommendations. Uh, it, it sort of prevents people from developing products that maybe meet the, the definitional uh, meaning of an nft without being the functional uh definition of it and, and it will sort of help uh prevent folks from trying to work around uh FATF's guidelines as implemented by their national regulators yeah fascinating area with uh, a lot of ramifications for the the DeFi space the decentralized finance space and it's interesting that there is this you know move to to bring a a control person kind of under scope uh, because in some ways, I think that's it's a little bit of, at tension with some of the uh, the DeFi projects that I've seen out there that are really are supposed to be, um, as the name implies, fully decentralized. There's no you know real oversight or regulation. It kind of runs as its own series of self-executing smart contracts, and nobody, in you know, in theory at least, is supposed to control it. But uh, it sounds like that's not the necessarily the the regulatory interpretation. And uh, you know, I wonder. You know, is there a sort of is there still a tension between regulation and even things like blockchain analytics um, and the original ethos that went into cryptocurrencies and maybe some of the ongoing ethos from some of the players within cryptocurrencies? Do you, do you still see that taking place? Yeah, absolutely. Right. There, there are a lot of people out there who are not crazy about the idea of crypto being brought into the mainstream in general. And they see firms like Elliptic uh, as sort of helping to undermine what, what they view to be one of the, the core missions of crypto, which was to create an anonymized financial intermediation system. Uh, my response to that would sort of be twofold. One, true financial anonymity while in some cases desirable, is oftentimes a bad thing, right? Nobody, or no good actors, I should say, uh, wants to help support you know, financial support of terrorism or wants to help support dark web marketplaces uh, that traffic in child abuse material, things like that. And by having some accountability and the ability to trace these transactions and at least identify 
uh, sort of the wallets to which those funds are delivered and, and the transactions that maybe support this activity. It helps to prevent the you know, support of terrorism in the future, helps prevent future instances of child abuse. And, and that's something that we take extremely seriously. Um, on the flip side, you know, I also think that the, it was very intentional that the blockchain be public from the outset, right? The, the idea of having uh, all of this information sort of verifiable by anyone at any time is por- part of the core ethos of, of what blockchain of what the blockchain was meant to be from sort of a financial transactions perspective. Uh, and it continues to be that way today. And so, you know, it might be the case that there are maybe those with a, a very libertarian streak who may see this as a bad thing. But for those who are interested in promoting mainstream adoption of crypto and of helping to prevent instances of some really sort of heinous financial crime that can occur uh, without without proper surveillance and oversight, um, you know, I, I think it's largely a good thing that firms like Elliptic exist. And I think it will help to make crypto something that's more palatable to a mainstream investor who doesn't want to have any association at all with, you know, some of the, the types of bad activity that we've discussed here. Yeah. A certain amount of tension is productive, too. You know, like uh, one of the things that I actually like about the crypto sector is its ability to uh, both work with the regulators and at times, I think, kind of and I'm not certainly don't want to speak for all crypto uh, VASPs and exchanges and that. So, but there are also some out there that that do, you know, push back a little um, and say, hey, look, this is a new technology and the regulations and the the concepts need to be tweaked to to meet it. And I think there is a uh, there is a there is a healthy amount of uh, there's there's something healthy about about a little bit of tension, a little bit of open dialogue, and you know how we work through this new financial system and come to a proper amount of regulation. So, uh, and proper yeah. type of regulation. So, I I completely agree on that point, and I, I really really want to underline something you said, which is that. It is good to have an open dialogue. It's good to have a back and forth conversation with regulators and law enforcement bodies about these issues. Look, this is all very new, right? Everyone knows that it's very new, both the sort of actors within the crypto world and the regulators themselves. And I think that, you know, based on my experience, regulatory partners are very open to hearing feedback about how things could be done better, how they could better promote innovation without sacrificing uh, AML compliance controls and things like that. And when you have a, a, a very vocal um, industry like you do in crypto, you're going to get much more collaboration on regulatory development than you would uh, otherwise. And so that ongoing dialogue and that, that ongoing sort of give and take of feedback, I think will ultimately result in a regulatory regime for crypto that maybe is even better than it is in the fiat world uh, because it, you know, you in a sense have a chance to start from scratch. You're relying on principles taken from fiat and, and it's very important to ensure that those principles are upheld, but the manner in which they're implemented uh, is entirely new. And so we have sort of this once in a lifetime opportunity to design a regulatory landscape that that really meets the use case at hand. And at least in the US, I think we're really seeing a, a great job of partnership between the industry and regulators to bring that forth. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's true. And, and you know, they don't always, in my opinion, regulators, at least in the U.S., uh, don't always get uh, uh, a whole lot of a whole lot of plaudits. But kudos to uh, the U.S.-based regulators for taking, I think, a pretty, you know, thoughtful and, and deliberate approach to this, um, and uh, creating the space for the crypto industry to grow and develop while still giving 
guidance and and regulatory frameworks to uh to keep it uh in compliance i know there's there's quite a bit of push for you know more clarity around regulations i think some of that would help but at the same time i think having a sort of openness for the industry to grow and a flexibility around uh the regulatory framework is uh is healthy for the 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 innovation that's taking place so um so yeah very positive developments all around on the on the regulatory front i think um let's switch gears a little and let's let's talk about why you know the 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 traditional the tradfi sector if i can call that um is still maybe a little hesitant to engage in 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 business with vasps or pursue any kind of uh, uh relationship with the, the crypto space so what fears or concerns um do banks and other traditional financial institutions still have about crypto in your experience some of it is just not fully understanding um sort of the opportunity presented and what the attendant risks are i was saying earlier there are a lot of really good subject matter experts within these institutions and that's definitely true um but not everyone is a subject matter expert and nor could you expect them to be right so a lot of times you'll have decision makers uh who think that you know bitcoin is all used for money laundering for instance that's something that you hear often and that it's it's all uh used in support of financial crime what we found at elliptic is that less than 1% of the overall activity within the world of crypto is actually used to facilitate uh some sort of of illicit transaction um and that was not the case you know if you go back to the early days of crypto 2013 14 you saw much higher numbers of crypto activity being used for bad purposes as we've seen sort of the larger institutional players come into the space you know that money has just so outweighed dark net markets and, and drug dealing and things like that, uh, that it really dwarfs it by comparison. And now that we're seeing a lot of fintechs offering these services directly to retail investors, that trend is only continuing. So I think as it becomes more clear that crypto does not represent sort of this niche bad actor market, um, it'll become more palatable for traditional financial institutions to offer these services. When it comes to taking on um, crypto service providers as customers, virtual asset service providers as customers, it's sort of a different set of challenges. So I sort of compare it to the correspondent banking world sometimes in the traditional financial sector, where if you have a correspondent banking customer, you're required to rely to some degree on their controls and disclosures in order to protect yourself. It's similar in the crypto world. So if you're a bank that serves as a fiat on-ramp and off-ramp for a crypto exchange, you, you have to really rely on that crypto exchanges, a, uh, AML and KYC programs. You have to trust that they have adequate blockchain monitoring and analytics. You have to trust that they're not trust, but you have to verify that their licensure is up to snuff. And so there's quite a bit of enhanced due diligence that has to be done on any of these entities. And oftentimes it's a combination of not having the bandwidth to do it and not and simply not wanting to do it because maybe they don't see the opportunity there. Um, but you know, as time goes by, I think it's becoming more and more clear that the opportunity is in fact there, right? There's a lot of money to be made in this space by traditional financial institutions. Um, and if they believe that they can make that money in a, in a compliant way, in a way that's not going to scare off or offend their regulators, I think they'll do it. As far as what maybe the residual risks are from where we started to where we are now, I think it's still things like identifying how much of the activity on a particular, let's call it exchange, uh, has a nexus to bad activity. 
do is senior management invested in a significant way in compliance? Have they sourced senior leadership from the traditional finance and crypto world to lead their compliance programs in a meaningful way? Um, a problem that you know we would often hear in the past was that crypto exchanges were treating compliance as a necessary evil and they were checking boxes, but they weren't actually meeting the spirit of regulations. From what we've seen, that is really no longer the case. And particularly having worked with some of the leading crypto exchanges in the world, they take compliance extremely seriously. They have senior level leader leadership dedicated uh, to maintaining uh, the compliance program, typically within a larger risk management organization. And so I do think that we're going to see those fears diminish. Um, the, the next step after maybe onboarding virtual asset service providers as a customer would be then offering those services yourself, which takes an additional you know, degree of knowledge and education and, and understanding uh, exactly how you can provide those services, both from a regulatory and from a technical perspective. There are a lot of tech, technical and architectural challenges that come into play when trying, for instance, to open up a crypto, crypto custodian business, excuse me. Um, and so that's, that's one, one issue. Uh, and then the next hurdle that businesses will probably have to leap will be entering into the DeFi space. So customers now are demanding access to DeFi lending protocols, uh, to decentralized exchanges, to, to all different types of decentralized finance products that are more difficult um, to risk mitigate from a financial institution perspective. That That is where leveraging a partner that can look into the actual blockchain analytics of what's going on and determine whether or not for instance, a particular decentralized exchange transaction might have an access to, say, a sanctioned individual or a dark web marketplace operator, et cetera. That's where it's going to become really vital to provide comfort to those mainstream institutions. As they learn more about it and as these types of transactions this, and this activity becomes more commonplace, my expectation is you'll see a movement into this space by some of the big players. It, it's always likely to be maybe the challenger banks and the smaller fintechs that dip their toes in first. They're, they're less naturally risk averse. They don't have maybe as much regulatory burden as some of the major financial conglomerates do. Um, but with time and as the technology proves itself out and as the risk controls uh, frameworks that can be developed by these firms prove to be sustainable, um, I do think that we'll see a shift to, to more and more adoption of crypto and DeFi more specifically uh, within financial institutions. Yeah, that's interesting to see that shift take place. Um, and I think, you know, again, it goes back to earlier point of customer demand is really driving a lot of the, uh, the, the shift in, uh, in institutional interest and in, in, in ways large and small adoption too. So as, as the, uh, you know, as the the number of headlines about the the price of Bitcoin uh, continue, continue to uh, grow, then uh, I think we'll see more and more of that take place. Uh, so it's been a fascinating discussion, Chris. I, I really appreciate um, all of the perspective. Let's end on a, a bit of looking ahead. You know, we're we're winding down the year. 2021 is almost in the the history books. Um, 2022 is is rapidly approaching. So where are we going, particularly on the regulatory side, you know, looking back over the past couple of years, as, as we've touched on, we've seen really a, a, a significant increase in both institutional interest and consumer adoption. Um, we've seen the emergence of DeFi as a, a much bigger presence in the crypto space. 
uh, and we've seen some major regulatory developments and, you know, as, as we alluded to with the FATF guidance, some really, I think, positive kind of confirmation of what we knew and big developments around DeFi. So, so where do we go next? Um, what do you see ahead in the new year? Yeah, I think we are very likely to see more securities market style regulations begin to be applied to crypto. Um, and maybe sort of one indicator of that came very recently uh, when the SEC sort of asserted regulatory authority over the stablecoin market. That's something the folks listening here may have seen. Um, basically, we don't yet know what it means. There's been very little information released as to what that framework is going to look like. Perhaps it will mean that stablecoins might be treated more like money market funds, et cetera. Um, but I don't think that that security style treatment of crypto is likely to pull back at all. If anything, I think we'll see an expansion in areas uh, like regulations related to pump and dumps and, and market manipulation activity more generally. Right now, within the, the crypto world, we see a ton of pump and dumps that are effectively scams. And, and you always have sort of smaller retail investors who are left holding the bag. And that just doesn't seem sustainable, where if you were doing the same activity in sort of the traditional fiat securities world, you'd be in jail, right? It's, it's just simply illegal. Um, I don't think that we can allow that type of activity to continue to proliferate in crypto uh, and at the same time promote mainstream adoption. Folks that are, you know, maybe small time investors, not super knowledgeable about crypto, they want to be ensured that they're protected and that there isn't uh, substantial market abuse going on. And that market abuse is not simply limited uh, to pump and dumps wash trading and, and other forms of manipulative activity to sort of make it appear as though there might be more volume and transaction activity in a given, given crypto than there actually is. Uh, I think we'll see regs around that as well. Um, insider trading movements or, or maybe something akin to insider trading. I think we'll see regulations uh, about that in the near future. So if you are the developer of a project and you're aware uh, that there's going to be a significant price movement in the coin based on your insider knowledge, you likely shouldn't be able to act on that if it comes at the expense of other investors. Again, given given sort of the SEC's uh, oversight that's been asserted in other areas, I think we'll see it here as well. So those are the main things uh, I would look for in 2022. Further regulation, regulation around market abuse, potential and fraud, uh, and likely an increase in oversight uh, of the crypto world by securities market regulators. Yeah, and we've definitely seen rumblings of that from the SEC uh, in the U.S. and others in other jurisdictions. You know, even even uh, over the past year or so. So I think you're uh, you're spot on with that. Well, Chris, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, as I, I, I said at the beginning, you know, this is a, a wide ranging look at the crypto universe, the regulatory uh, state of play, and so much more. And it's been fascinating to have you here to give us this. Uh, this very valuable perspective as we continue to uh, to to ride this uh, crypto rocket to the moon here in uh, 2022. So really appreciate the time and perspective, and thank you for joining us on the Financial Crimecast. Thank you. It's been great chatting. And thanks to our listeners out there. Please find the Financial Crimecast on Spotify, Apple, and many of your other favorite podcasting platforms. And join us again for the next episode shortly. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for being here.